Hello, and welcome back to Healthcare Super Teams. I'm Haru Okuda. In our inaugural series on Healthcare Super Teams, I spoke with experts in the science of teamwork, the CEO of the Nestle Corporation, the conducting fellow of the New World Symphony, and even a lead NASA scientist who specializes in creating teams for space travel in order to learn how extraordinary groups come together to create super teams. One common theme that all of our guests spoke on is how effective teamwork and communication is critical to the success of high-functioning organizations. In our most recent series, I examined healthcare super teams more closely, but through the lens of individuals, specifically individuals from diverse backgrounds and race, gender identity, and culture to understand the impact of racism and bias within healthcare and its effect on individuals as well as on teams. In preparation for our upcoming series, our team thought hard about the current challenges faced by our healthcare workers due to the pandemic. We wanted to dedicate a series on how we can keep our super teams healthy. A survey by Medscape in 2022 reported 42% of physicians were burned out, women greater than men, and 21 indicated they were depressed. A 2021 study in the Journal of American Medical Association found 31% of nurses were leaving their jobs due to burnout. In this season, we will be interviewing experts in mental health and wellness and discussing burnout within healthcare and its effect on individuals as well as on teams. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Harry, Senior Medical Director of Wellbeing at UC Health. Dr. Harry is also an Associate Professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and internist at UC Health. Dr. Harry, welcome to Healthcare Super Teams. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here to chat with you. Well, I, I was looking forward to chatting with you because it's such an important topic. And I know you're extremely busy as a practicing physician. So again, very appreciative that you could join us. So I actually want to get right into the important topic of mental health and well-being. Even before the pandemic, we were hearing about healthcare provider shortages due to issues with burnout impacting nurses, doctors, and other health professions. I imagine it's only gotten worse over the past two pandemic years. Are the issues of mental health and burnout as bad as they seem? And what can you tell us about the general state of healthcare providers right now? Yeah, thanks. It's such a good question. And you're absolutely right. It was something that was gathering a lot of attention before the pandemic. So interestingly, in 2019, the Mass Medical Society and the Harvard School of Public Health came together and actually declared physician burnout a public health crisis. Uh, and the reason that they said that is because it threatened to undermine the patient-physician relationship, the impact on quality of care, and then also, to your point, the retention issues. So this was really highlighted at that point. And then Fascinatingly, NAM and the National Academy of Medicine actually released their landmark report on clinician burnout in October of 2019, so just mm -hmm. before the pandemic. And they really emphasize that this is not an individual issue. This is mm -hmm. not something that we need to just teach people you know, how to do yoga and meditation while those things can be helpful. But this is a systemic issue that needs systemic interventions and needs to be addressed at all levels. So there was a lot of attention on it before. There have been studies looking at now how has the impact been during COVID and how have things changed. Interestingly, in a lot of spaces, burnout hasn't changed, but what has changed is depression and anxiety as well as suicide ideation. And so I think what we're seeing is that we had somewhat of a burnout or occupational hazard crisis before, 
And now we're putting a mental health crisis on top of what was an occupational health crisis before. Wow. Um, it's, it, it is interesting. I would have imagined burnout to have increased, but to see that it's it's very similar, I'm, I'm guessing in terms of the rate or percentage, but now it's pushing into the mental health space for our healthcare providers. That's right. And I think part of the issue is the rates were so high before and the variability between specialties was so wide that the average is similar in most studies. There are some studies that have shown that it's gone up and there are definitely specialties in which it's gone up. So for emergency medicine, definitely burnout rates have gone up. Um, for Interestingly, for any specialty where folks were in the airway, burnout rates mm-hmm. definitely went up. Um, and then home critical care, those sorts of right. things. Um, but definitely this shift to a mental health crisis mm-hmm. away from what used to be sort of very occupationally focused. Okay. No, that's, that's helpful to get that perspective. So thank you for that. So I, I'm kind of curious. I mean, this is obvi- you're obviously very passionate about this, and you give talks. I heard you. I've heard your talks in the past. You research in this area. What drew you into this field of of wellness? Yeah, it's it's a funny story actually. Um, thanks for asking. I was very interested in quality improvement actually as a trainee. So I did the hospitalist training track, and we were trained a lot in quality improvement. And I left residency, and in my first job was doing quite a bit of quality improvement work. Mm-hmm. And we did a very large intervention that had great outcome data for the patients and for length of stay and for complications of care. But our providers didn't like it. And we got really negative feedback from our providers. And I thought that was really interesting. And I thought, why would a group so passionate about delivering excellent care not be passionate about an intervention that helps them do that? And what I learned at, at, when I interviewed folks is that they were tired. They were tired of change and they had change fatigue. So I started researching change fatigue. And uh, when I did that, that brought me to this concept of cognitive load, which is basically the idea that we have a finite ability to process information. And when overloaded, we don't do well. <laughs> we don't perform well and we're not happy, it turns out. And so I got really interested in that, and I got interested in the impacts of cognitive load, one of which it turns out there's a really strong relationship between being overloaded and burnout. Uh, and so that was sort of my journey into well-being. So interesting. I, I, I'm also, as many of the listeners know, I'm an emergency physician, so I, I definitely understand the cognitive load piece. Um, also, quality and safety are really important to me and what I do in simulation. And, uh, you know, it's it makes me wonder where, you know, we've been working on quality and safety for almost 20 years since the Institute of Medicine in 1999, two years human. And we haven't seen, we sort of, I feel like we've reached a threshold of improvement. And I wonder if some of that or a lot of that is because a lot of the frontline, the sharp end uh, providers are so burnt out that they can't take on more for patient safety. It sounds terrible, but I really feel for the frontline uh, healthcare workers. I think that's exactly right. And I think there's another interesting piece there, which is the whole field of human factors engineering and using that knowledge to improve safety. And a big part of that is thinking about what are human factors. And part of the human mm-hmm. factors are that we have minds and we have hearts and and we, you know, we are impacted by the things that we interact with. And I'll just give you an example I often tell people is any idea in and of itself can seem like a really good idea. And I've been in many meetings where we're like, that's a fantastic idea. We should implement that thing. 
But is there any one person in an organization that knows exactly how many BPAs, for example, an intern is going to get at two in the morning admitting a patient with sepsis? Is there any one person keeping track of the entire cognitive load that comes onto the front line? And I think in most institutions, the answer is no. So even though each one of those individual interventions is a great idea, putting them together is no longer a good idea. Yeah, that's super interesting. So I kind of wanted to ask you about this position. So you're the Senior Medical Director of Wellbeing. I've also heard Chief Wellness Officer is another title. But honestly, until maybe a few years ago, I had never even heard of this position. And so I was kind of curious if you could tell us a little bit about what this role is and who is often in this position. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So you mentioned the, the impact on quality of the Institute of Medicine's report. And after that, there was a lot of focus on quality and chief quality officers started popping up around the country. But it wasn't standard place that every institution had a chief quality officer for a long time. And now everyone has a chief quality officers and there's metrics and they're measured on all of these things. I think that well-being is taking a very similar journey. So the National Academy of Medicine published their report in 2019. The AMA has made it a requirement to get their joy in medicine recognition to have a senior executive uh, that is accountable for this. And then the Harvard School of Public Health, when they called this a public health crisis, they actually recommended a senior executive that's accountable for looking at this. So the purpose of that role is just that, that you have someone in the senior executive leadership that is solely responsible for looking at and thinking about the well-being of those completing the jobs to take care of our patients and that they are able to participate in decision-making at a high level to help influence some of those discussions around, yes, all of these ideas seem good in in silo, but putting together, they're not going to be a good idea. And it's to try to help keep this idea of well-being at the forefront of people's minds when we're making decisions. That's interesting. It does make a lot of sense because now I can't imagine any hospital without a chief quality officer. And probably more than 20 years ago, that was a new thing. It's hard to believe. And in speaking with some of the leaders I've interviewed, to have change, you need somebody that wakes up every morning thinking about that, you know, change, that topic. And in your case is wellness. And if it's sort of a piece of somebody's job, then it won't necessarily get integrated well. So then I'm kind of curious if there are all these recommendations or requirements from these notable organizations, why hasn't this position or why haven't hospitals adopted this? I I know folks at different hospitals and they don't have a senior medical director for well-being or chief wellness officer. So where, where are we on adoption? I think we're early in in the process. It's accelerating. There is a sort of a national group of folks that get together who do this job. And we talk Mm -hmm. monthly about difficulties people are facing. And that group gets bigger every time I join it. So I think that's a really positive thing. Stanford offers a course on this to actually teach people how to be a chief wellness officer. And that is, you know, widely attended every year. So I think it's becoming more and more. But to your point, I remember our first chief quality officer. And I remember, you know, him sort of making the case for that position and being like, wow, that's that's a thing. That's a job someone can have. Um, I think we're in that stage around chief wellness officers, but I suspect in the next five to 10 years, it will be commonplace like it is for chief quality officers. That's great to hear. I'm, I'm excited about that. So then in maybe some of these organizations, there are some individuals, leaders, systems that push back and say, you know, burnout is overstated. 
doctors, nurses, they just need more grit. You hear that a lot. Or like you alluded to earlier, all they just need to do is some meditation, some yoga, eat better, um, and then their burnout will go away. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I mean, you, you hear things like that. In a recent presentation that I heard you give, I learned a ton, and you mentioned something called the five pillars of wellness change. And so I was hoping you can sort of walk us through what that is. It's obviously more complicated than a little bit of meditation and yoga. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, just to say there's a lot of data to support this and and meditation is actually a very helpful intervention. And I think the way to think about it and the way I often tell people to think about it is that you want to bring your best self to work so that you are as resilient as possible. Um, Tate Shanafield always tells a funny story, so I have to give him credit for this because this is not my story. But, you know, if he were to train in boxing and lift weights and do cardiovascular mm-hmm. fitness, that would be really good for him. But if you put him in the ring with a champion boxer, he's going to get knocked out all the time. And no offense to Tate, he tells that story <laughs> and that mm-hmm. would get knocked out too. The point is that it's good to do self-care, but if you're put in an environment that overpowers any of that, the amount of self-care just doesn't matter at some point. Right. And so right. I think that's sort of the point of that story. So at UC Health, we have five pillars around our per- professional fulfillment strategy. Um, and the first is organizational well-being. And that's how do you do your job? And that's kind of what you and I were talking about. What are the pebbles in your shoe? What make it harder to get the work done? And what's overloading you? What between you and the outcome you want for your patients? And how can we remove some of those pebbles in your shoe? The second is the climate of well-being. What does it feel like to work here? So, you know, if I have um, a patient say something really inappropriate to me, what's my team going to do around me? Do they know how to stand up for me? How do we talk to each other? How do we handle conflict? What's our culture of safety? So really looking at knowing that all those things impact burnout, depression, anxiety, and suicide ideation, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so knowing that we need to create a really high uh, quality culture um, in our organizations. The third is behavioral health. And this is rapid access to safe, confidential behavioral health for the reasons that we talked about earlier. There is a mental health crisis right now. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that people have access to behavioral health in a way that they feel safe and they know is destigmatized. The fourth is community. So we uh, surveyed our faculty and found that about half were experiencing loneliness. Um, and, and we know that from a lot of the work that's been done at Mayo with some of their communal groups where they go out to dinner, that coming together with your colleagues and having that sense of community is actually very protective against burnout and really, really important. And so how do we build that community, especially in large health systems like ours? And then the Fifth, and the last one is personal well-being. And that's everything you would think of. So how do we teach you skills to be resilient and to do well in the current climate, in the current organizational structure until we are able to solve those things because those things take time. So we want people to have as many skills as they can to deal with moral injury, moral distress, burnout, all those things as we're trying to remove the drivers of those issues. So interesting. I, I, I appreciate you framing that because I think much like quality back in the day, it's it, for me, it's very hard to get a, a grasp over how complex it is. And I think understanding that it's not just the doctor or nurse's responsibility to figure it out is comforting. And it makes me want to find an organization that really embraces wellness like you've defined. I, I, I do imagine, were these five pillars implemented pre-COVID or was that during COVID or? During COVID. We had just started building sort of this whole infrastructure right at the beginning of COVID. I imagine some of those things like building a community must have been really challenging during COVID. 
Absolutely. So the place that we actually focused the most during that were um, volunteer vaccination efforts. So we had a ton of our medical staff come out and volunteer Mm -hmm. to do mass vaccination clinics. And many of them told me that that was the most meaningful part of their week or month um, to get out there with their colleagues, see other people and to really feel like they were making a difference in in a different way from the way they make a difference every day, which is huge. Um, Mm -hmm. But that was very meaningful for people. So that was good for us to learn that providing the opportunity of large volunteer opportunities where people can work on public health and come Mm -hmm. together was really helpful for for our medical staff. That's so interesting. I mean, when you talk about building a community, my my knee jerk is like, oh, we'll get together for drinks and go hang out. But that's a great example of community building that doesn't require additional work. You're going to do it anyway and maybe being purposeful about it. I, I remember when I also volunteered and that was one of my favorite parts of the COVID pandemic, if you could say that, is like getting out to the community with, you know, pharmacists and nurses and other folks and giving vaccinations. So filled my cup for sure for, for some time. That's right. And I think the important thing that you're naming there is that not only are you building community with your teams, mm-hmm. but you're also building community with the communities that we serve and really feeling engaged in those communities. And I think that's critical to, to that sense of meaning and purpose that's really protective for us. So interesting. So I wanted to ask a little bit about, and, and I think you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but you know, obviously lack of well-being or burnout impacts the individual providers and likely then it impacts the teams that they're working with, right? If you're not motivated or depressed or frustrated or angry, you might take it out on your team members. But then ultimately, our, our, we are here to take care of patients and I'm curious, have there been studies or are you aware, like, does this burnout impact patient care or patient safety or, or quality, the, the things that we we're talking about earlier? Absolutely. So all of the above. Um, so we know that if a provider is burnt out, they are less likely to have patient-centered communication. We know that they are more likely to be named in a lawsuit. We know that they're more likely to self-report medical errors and, and medical errors have been associated with being burnt out. Um, they're more likely to leave, lowering access to care, um, particularly in specialties like psychiatry, where we have a really hard time with access to care across the country right now. And they are more likely to contribute, to your point, a poorer safety climate within their team and turnover within their team, which destabilizes the ability to provide patient care in an excellent and, and cohesive fashion. So ultimately, all of this touches the patient. And I think the most poignant way to say it is one of the definitions of burnout. There's three components of it. Um, And one of it is depersonalization, which is creating a distance between you and those that you interact with. And when I think about wanting to see a physician or an advanced practice provider or or my loved one seeing them, I want somebody who's very engaged and and Mm -hmm. interested in what's happening. I don't want someone who is depersonalizing me or my loved one, um, and just treating us like a number or another person. And that's one of the symptoms of burnout. So I think when we think about being patients and who we want our physicians to be, um, we want a physician that has professional fulfillment uh, and not a burnt out physician for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of those examples that you gave seem but I would imagine if you're a leadership in a hospital or organization or even as chief financial officer, I mean, those are directly related to things that we measure and that impact even revenue. So it seems almost, you know, like a a no-brainer that we should be really focusing on this. Over the last 
few years since the studies that you know you you mentioned just before COVID. Have you seen things changing? Are organizations adopting it more? Are they taking it more seriously? And if so, um, could you give some examples where you've you've seen some change? Yeah, so I would say that there's been a ton of adoption in organizations recognizing that this is an issue. Um, one, because of the COVID pandemic themselves and just the moral injury related mm-hmm. to that. Um, two, turnover. You know, we've had the great resignation, not just outside of healthcare, but also in healthcare. And I think everybody's feeling that. And to your point, there's very clearly a financial implication. You can actually go to the AMA's website. They have a calculator and you can put in your turnover rate and you can put in your burnout rate and they will tell you how much physician burnout is costing your organization every year, Um, which is, and it's, you know, based on a paper they put out and they sort of explain how they do all the math. But that's a very helpful tool. I think there are a ton of organizations doing this well. Um, You know, obviously there's the Stanford's and the Mayo's of the world that have really led this conversation and, and and delivered a lot of the research in this space. Christiana Care is another organization that's been thinking a lot about this for a long time. There's a lot going on at UMass Medical Center. We at UC Health are incredibly invested in this and, and have a lot of senior executive buy-in. Um, I think every time I turn around, I'm seeing a new interesting study coming out about how people are trying to engage in making a difference in this. And people are being really creative. So one example I'll just give you is a study came out recently showing that, you know, you can save in the hundreds of millions of dollars um, by implementing a coaching program for your physicians because of the impact it has on retention. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's really nice because it gives people those individual skills, but it also helps them in how they show up and lead the teams that they're leading. That's so interesting. I'm, I'm curious then, you know, if we shift a little bit to our um, incoming workforce, so medical students, nursing students, residents, maybe we're not doing enough at that end of the spectrum in terms of giving them tools um, as they go through the system. And I, I'm not sure how COVID impacted the medical students and nursing students, et cetera, if they increased their level of burnout as well. I definitely did see for the emergency medicine residents, they looked pretty beat up and at times apathetic uh, during COVID. So um what are your thoughts in that earlier group of you know the, the students in terms of wellness and, and burnout? Yeah, it's a really good question. So you know we know that medical students are actually less burnt out than the general population when they enter medical school and have normal or higher rates of empathy. And then by the end of third year of medical school, they actually have lower rates of empathy. And so there's something about the process of training them that actually um, creates a little bit of that callousness, which we don't want. There is a new model of curriculum that's come out of Harvard Medical School. Um, The University of Colorado has implemented it, which is this longitudinal integrated clerkship model that has shown a preservation of that empathy at the end of third year. And it's a different way to sort of interact with your patients and follow them over time. And I think novel interventions like that at the medical school level um, were here before COVID, but have been very important during COVID and continue to help there. In terms of GME, they have really focused on this for quite some time. And, and there are a lot of regulations now around um, what you need to educate trainees on around well-being, sleep hygiene. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of leadership positions popping up in GME across the country around this. So there's actually a course at Mount Sinai that teaches folks how to be a GME leader in well-being mm-hmm. because that is popping up so much. But I think one of the most important things about this idea of the next generation and our pipeline is that there are generational differences and 
life expectations that the generation coming up has Mm -hmm. where they are not likely to tolerate a lot of the lifestyle that we were asked to tolerate. And so I think to your earlier question, people may say this shouldn't be an issue or people need to have more grit. Fine. But this is what it is. And we either need to adapt our system to acclimate who's coming in um, and where people are, or they're going to leave. They're going to, they're going to vote with their feet. And so I I think ultimately we need to be really conscientious about the generation that's coming in and that they're, they're going to want a different kind of life. And they're very interested in innovation and having their hands in lots of different Mm -hmm. pots. And how do we build jobs that support them in doing that so that we can continue to grow um, our field and, and continue to have people enter it and love it. That's a that's a great 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 thought and great response. I appreciate that very much. Thank you. I want to kind of ask a question, and again, I, I sort of think in terms of my quality safety hat. So back twenty years ago, the healthcare system we didn't really look at patient safety as well as we should have, and we've done much better now. But there were organizations doing this really well outside of healthcare. Highly reliable organizations like the nuclear power industry, commercial airline, that they just are obsessed with safety, et cetera. So, and sometimes when we in healthcare look for solutions, we look within and not really, you know, maybe benefit from other folks that have already done it. So I wanted to sort of get your thoughts on, are there companies outside of healthcare doing this really well and have maybe been doing this for some time really well? Um, reducing their burnout, having high retention and happy employees. I'm just kind of curious who they are and if you can tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, I think it's such a good question. I think first, the overlap with quality would be in the human factor space, right? And who's doing that really well? Who's looking Mm -hmm. at what does it mean to be a human doing this job? And I would Mm -hmm. say that's NASA. So they have, you know, human factors engineers. They have human factors engineers on many of their committees. I've worked um, with someone that works there on on some of our research, and she has taught me a lot about the way um, that they build their processes and protocols. And they spend a lot of time asking the question, how is this going to impact the overall task load or cognitive load and thus the performance of the human using the system? And we don't have that pause built in yet. So we sort of look at all of these interventions siloed still. And, you know, they're doing a lot of things like saying, okay, if we have someone in space and this goes wrong, what are the seven things we want them to do and check for? And they're just bringing seven up because they can't do more than seven and they can't Mm -hmm. stock the ship with more than the supplies to support seven. And so this Mm -hmm. idea of constraint and of really thinking about simplifying things, which is not the direction that we're headed in, right? Things are getting more complex by the day. There are entire industries that look at complexity science. So there's the New, New England Complex Systems Institute, for example, mm-hmm. that is um, specifically geared to studying complexity and its impact on society. But I mm-hmm. think organizations where they are intentionally looking at the complexity, intentionally looking at human factors and how to build systems that take our natural limitations into account rather than just saying you shouldn't be limited in that way, right? Which is sort of what we do in healthcare um, or completely ignoring the question altogether. Um, So I think those are are excellent examples. The other, I think, pretty obvious example that people talk about would be in sort of the tech industry where people have really said, 
we value you so much that we respect mm-hmm. your autonomy. You decide how many weeks of vacation you have. You decide when you're going to work and where you're going to work from. And we trust you to get mm-hmm. your job done. And I think that inserting that level of autonomy back into healthcare would be very helpful for um, a lot of folks around burnout. We know that that's protective around burnout. And mm-hmm. I see a little bit of the opposite happening where because of regulations and other issues, there's a loss of autonomy, um, which I don't think is serving us in the well-being space. That's so interesting. So the the second example was something that I think m- many people would have assumed that you would say, which you know is like you hear about these companies that have um, they can make their own schedules, they can work in you know before COVID, it's like they can work wherever they want. That that was cutting edge, and now we're we're doing that and having pool tables set up. But you know maybe it, it's well, it's not as obvious the response around NASA and human factor. So um, it was, it's a really interesting example because it really talks, it's not just about trying to make everyone happy. It's about, you know, changing systems so that their stress level and because work can be stressful, but when you get overwhelmed or cognitive overload, then it can actually be unhealthy. And mm-hmm. so doing that science and research to, to look at all those things, I think is an area that I think a lot of people don't think about when they're thinking about wellness and, and well-being. I think that's right. And and I think also just realizing that not only do people's well-being go down, but their performance uh, mm-hmm. precipitously declines. And there's a lot of, of evidence to support that piece as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, now, again, I always go back to patient safety and quality because it's there's so many similarities, it feels like. But, you know, I, I alluded to a little bit of the, the, the challenge of people trying to make the change. And I, I think you made a really good point about the new generation of folks that just won't even tolerate it, even if, you know, you say well, you need to be tougher and you just have to suck it up because that's how I always did it. Um, but how difficult is it to change that culture of an organization and thinking forward, like, how, how do you work to change that resistance to change? Like, how do you work through these folks? Yeah, it's such a good and classic question, right? So, change, you know, change management is change hard. Management. and it- Right, exactly. And it takes time, you know, and I think the biggest thing for me has been meeting people where they are and trying to understand their their fears and concerns around this, because really there was a big piece of a generational narrative happening here. And um, interestingly, I've, I've heard it likened to PTSD, where we didn't have any cases of PTSD until we defined it. And then all of a sudden, everybody had PTSD. Right. And the question being, is this similar in that we didn't talk about or have so much burnout, but maybe we did and we just didn't define it. And now we have a lot more. And what I always try to tell people in these very one-on-one interactions, which is how I try to handle this is just sort of one person at a time or one leader at a time, is that it almost doesn't matter because if we're in the business of relieving suffering and we know that the people that are trying to help us relieve the suffering of patients are suffering, then we have somewhat a moral and ethical obligation there. And I think that resonates with most folks, regardless of sort of their historical belief about how physicians should show up to work. Um, And then I think it's just reminding people. So you sit in meetings and then they're proposing something in it. It's probably a great idea from a quality and safety standpoint, but it's going to really hinder workflow, you know, saying, well, could we have a balancing measure about people's satisfaction before and after this, or use the NASA task load index and evaluate what their task load is in the Mm -hmm. current process. And then in this new proposed process, and are we actually adding more to their plate? Um, And at what point is that sort of 
too much. And so I think it's a lot of education. I think it's a lot of um, trying to understand what where people's resistance comes from and helping people see that this is a win-win. That if you have providers that are thriving and have high professional mm -hmm. fulfillment, they're going to stay at your organization. They're going to save you money because they're going to stay. They're going to spend longer there. They're going to build relationships with patients. They're going to treat them better. You're going to have higher referrals. Um, they're going to provide better care. They're going to be a better team member. You'll have better patient experience. It's a win-win proposition. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's how you slowly um, sort of help with the resistance. I haven't found as much resistance on the front line because I think folks that are on the front line feel it. They know it. So yeah, you don't have to convince sure. them. For sure. I, I was just thinking, is this a U.S. problem or, you know, is this a global problem? Um, you know, every health care system is different. You have, you know, privatized and in a very competitive market like the U.S. in a capitalist market. And then you have more socialized healthcare systems. Is there a difference? Are there countries that are this is burnout isn't even an issue? It's a good question, and it's a common question, um, and it is an issue everywhere, which is really interesting. So there's actually an international conference of physician health that happens every two years, and people come from all over, and you hear presentations from people in Europe and people in Canada, and I've met folks in Australia working on this. And um, so it, it it is a systemic issue um, across healthcare, which I think is very interesting, and I think mm -hmm. one of the things we have to remember is that being a human caring for other humans in some of the hardest times in their life is hard. And we are a young industry when it comes to thinking about how to build that in a way that's sustainable and that enhances people's performance and their ability to show up as their best individual selves. We historically have been a little bit, have a sort of Superman or Superwoman complex mm -hmm. about how to show up there. And so I think we're kind of redefining what it means to be a successful caregiver in healthcare. That's great. Um... I, I really enjoy talking to you. You're very positive and you have uh, a very hopeful look at the future. And I'm, I was wondering when students come to you and say, should I go into healthcare? Should I become a doctor or a nurse? I'm curious what your response is because when people come to me, I go, uh, yeah, maybe, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's different. It's, it's really hard. There's these things called electronic medical records, which, you know, looking at the data is like the number one reason why people get burnt out. Um, what, what are you telling folks when they say, hey, I want to be a doctor or, you know, health can go into healthcare? Yeah. So I actually have a medical student I'm, I'm meeting with later today uh, for, for similar questions. And I always say, yes, I think we are one of we have one of the luckiest jobs in the world. Right. We get to be part of people's lives at very special times and, and connect with them and support them. And we also get to be really creative with our own life paths. And um, I've done a ton of different kinds of administrative jobs. I've been a hospitalist for 10 years. I'm moving back to primary care. I mean, you, you just have so much flexibility, so much um, ability to make an impact in the world. And, and I think if we're creative about how we design our lives and we design our jobs, um, this can be one of the most fulfilling jobs that are out there. And I think that creativity piece is the most important. And so I really encourage mentees and folks that come to me to be very creative about how they design their lives and design their jobs. And I think as leaders, we need to be really creative in what sort of jobs we allow people to design, recognizing that that's a huge part of their professional fulfillment. That's a great answer. So one final question for you. So let's say 
we have a hospital CEO that listened to our podcast and said, all right, maybe, you know, for all the reasons that you've mentioned, maybe it's good for my ROI, it's good for patient safety, I want to, you know, retain my folks because the new generation won't tolerate this. And they want to start the next steps in health and wellness and well-being for their health system or hospital. What's the first step for them? I think it's two things. So one, I think it's get the data. You have to know how your folks are doing. And there's a lot of ways to do that. So the AMA offers a free tool that anybody can can use and they'll help you use. The Mayo has a well-being index, the, the Mayo Wellbeing Index. Stanford has the Physician Wellness and Academic Consortium with the Professional Fulfillment Index. Um, so get the data to know how are your folks doing and where are your vulnerable populations. And that's been surprising to me over time. So we know that women are more burnt out than men, and that's been pretty consistent over studies uh, for quite some time now. Um, But those that are underrepresented in medicine are also experiencing more burnout in some of our studies. And then interestingly, researchers. And so that's something if I were a leader at an academic medical center, I'm going to care about that very much and say, well, what do I need to do to support the researchers? So that would be piece number one. And then piece number two is you need to bring leaders into this space. And so find the people that are interested in it and get them trained up. There's lots of opportunities to go out there and learn how to do this job. Um, mm-hmm. But a CEO or a, or a dean doesn't have the time to do this themselves. So they need to mm-hmm. hire someone that knows how to do this. That makes sense. Data and leadership, I, uh, you know, both super important. It comes up as a common theme. Dr. Harry, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a, such a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, you're so welcome. This was really fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Our guest has been Dr. Elizabeth Harry, Senior Medical Director of Wellbeing at UC Health. If there's a particular topic you'd like to hear more about here on Healthcare Super Teams, let us know. Our email is ipep at usf.edu. Until next time, I'm Haru Okuda. Thank you for joining us on Healthcare Super Teams.